Welcome to On Farm Trials with the PNW Farmers Network, where we explore the many trials that come along with cropping systems innovation in the Pacific Northwest. Plenty of questions get asked while farming across this region, and together we're digging into what it's like to try to answer some of them as producers, researchers, and the many other professionals in the field that get things done. In this two-part series, we dig into the decades-long journey of cropping systems innovation with Mr. Wade Troutman of Open Heart Farms in Bridgeport, Washington. We're glad you're here. I'm your host, Carol McFarland. So can I ask, um, you know, you've tried so many things. What's the most interesting thing you've learned from a past trial? The most interesting thing um, to me is you do a trial because you're trying to achieve a goal. And the most, the most challenging things is what's the collateral damage. You know, you might get a weed or something, you, you know, some unintended consequences. But it's what you didn't know about the crop. It was like with canola that it would break up that hard plan layer. And before I ever realized it was also changing the soil microbiology. So it's those things... You might be trying a trial because you're trying to improve one thing, and you find out that, oh, here's another great benefit that I didn't even know that was out there. So that's um, been my experience, is there's been a lot more good things than bad things that happen. And uh, I think not trying anything is the most dangerous and yeah, you're not going to lay out the capital and do the whole farm in one year, but you get you kind of got to see where it works because just because it works in Iowa or in the labs at WSU does not mean it's going to work on your farm. Yeah. And and taking that knowledge and adapting it, you can glean a lot of knowledge there, but you still got to know your dirt and and uh, and make it work on your farm. Well, so we did kind of talk a little bit about your, you know, your advocacy for uh, replicating from, you know, between years um, or over time <clears throat> and those researchers rubbing off on you. How do you decide where to put a trial and how big to make it, how to represent it over the landscape and kind of what it might do on the spread across your farm? I've thought about this question a lot of times and, and the replication is the hardest, but we run through maybe a dozen soil types easily in a quarter section. And so one of the things we try to, what I've learned over time is to adapt it to your equipment. So you don't want to do a spot here and a spot there. You want to run the length of the field. And it doesn't matter if it's got a rocky ridge in it or it's your best ground. I think to really learn how to grow something, you know, you're going to have more success on your better ground. And our ground's very variable. It's like with direct seed, which I've been doing for a long time. It works, I got it to work on the sandy ground a lot better than tillage. On the hard clays, not so much. And so I'm still working with that problem. I guess I'm fortunate because I can run a, a half a mile strip and go through two or three different soil types. Um, 
you poor guys that are stuck with this one soil type through your whole field, then you'd still want to run it across your swells and over your ridge. I'm pretty sure that none of those guys exist in eastern Washington and northern Idaho. You don't... You don't want to put it on your porous ground. Uh, a lot of times, if if when you're starting out, you know, I, I think it's, it might be hard to justify in your mind to take some of your best ground and do it. But if you're going to do it more than one year, if you've made a commitment, I'm going to see if I can make this work. You'll probably learn more having a little bit of success. I mean, better ground is going to give you better success. And then saying, oh, okay this is what I know and we're going a little bit too deep or we're planting it too shallow or uh, this isn't working and then expand it to your poor soils. Ooh, that's good advice. So, okay, how about in terms of where your neighbors can see it? Do you put it right next to your house? Do you put it right next to the road? Do you put it way back? You don't seem like a guy that's putting it way back on the farthest tucked away corner. Well, it's I don't have any neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's... Um, you said you're used to. Uh, no, it's... Um, well, there was, I think, 10 or 11 people farming on the hill when I started farming, and now it's down to two of us. And so... That makes uh, the coffee shop talk pretty lean. Well, and there used to be people at the coffee shop, and that's gotten really thin too. So, it, it's uh, but anyway, the it's I, I don't I don't even think about that. My dad was one of those that whatever's along the road has to be perfect because that's where the banker drives by. He was more <laughs> conscious of, or the landlord drives by. And so if he would do an experimental plot, it would be in the back of the field. But I, I don't give a damn. We got to get those landlords to be really excited about the on-farm trials, too. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much. You've tried so many things. Uh, would you share about um, what things you do now? I, th I think there's a lot of things, it sounds like. Um, that you do now as part of your standard management that started as trials? Well, canola, of course, is the big one. What the current trial we're doing and what we're working on is, is I learn stuff every year, and the scientific community learns stuff every year. And, and so this whole idea of having a summer annual as part of the helping the biotica of the soil, words that I didn't even know existed probably 20 years ago, but um, that search for, that's why I've got sunflowers and sorghum this year, that search for a summer annual is uh, always ongoing in my mind. When I started raising canola, it wasn't just canola, it was mustard and camelina and I settled on canola because it was the one brassica there. I, I don't know if camelina is the brassica, but... Yes. Okay. And, and it... And actually, we had a pretty good crop of of um, mustard like they use in the restaurants. Yeah. Uh, 
I almost died cutting it because it I had found to out be I was deadly what allergic I could grow to the it. best and have what? the most well, potential not to meet the goals. But I mean, my eyes watered, my skin turned red, at. and I'm going. It, it, raw mustard's very hot. Yeah. <laughs> and so. I, I just said, uh, I can't raise this again because if I ever plug up the combine, I'm pretty sure I'll die. Wow, that definitely sounds like quite the trial. So uh, I've never learned from just growing one thing, and that's why, you know, we got sunflowers and sorghum both, but we're looking for something with a different chemistry and a different growing season. Uh, Spring grain has always been very, very challenging in this country. Um, I like barley and oats, both of them, but I could never get barley higher than my rocks. And the oats, there just hasn't been that good a market for it. I mean, the profitability, unless you ha are going to feed it yourself to your own cows, which I think is a, is a good crop. It's a little, one that's a little harder to market, but um, I'm still looking for a profitable spring crop to bring into my rotation. Now, I haven't heard you say anything in all of your experiments with cropping diversification about a legume. Have you tried some legumes, too? Oh, yeah. Too? We, we raise, believe it or not, yellow split peas and... and uh, the neighbors have kind of laughed like, okay, you're going to have to buy a new header platform by the end of the year. But what I love about peas, we used them when we were doing organic. Uh, the market for organic yellow split peas really sucks. We ended up selling them on the commercial market because Whole Foods and PCC and some other outlets, they get their yellow split peas from China and you can't compete with that. Uh, I mean, that's because they get it from a distributor and the distributor will sit there and, and so it's the same as conventional prices. So that didn't work so well on organic profit-wise. It was putting some nitrogen in. I had 80 acres of peas in last year and then this harvest we came back and put some spring wheat in it and now you know the spring wheat on that particular piece was twice double the yield what my other spring wheat was so and just because i say something not profitable doesn't mean i give up trying on it this is the hard part on on talking about rotations is so the peas even though they in the went about a ton and then that's a good yield in this country. Um, it didn't really make much money on it, even though it's a low input crop. And so then I, we got an extra 20 bushels on the spring wheat. So how do, do you, you know, you have to come back. This is the really hard part of it is saying, well, that 20 bushel came from the rotation. We know that. I mean, we feel it in our guts, but how do you economically account for that? And so it's a, that's a real hard problem to well, figure out. I am just so excited about the idea of cropping systems innovation for those reasons, right? You were talking about, um, you know, just as a wheat farmer, and I've worked 
a lot of dryland wheat uh, for most of my career. And, you know, that good stand of wheat is, is really satisfying. But, at, you know, at the same time, we're interested in this cropping system diversification. And so much of it is about how do we really give that wheat crop that's the bread and butter of the system, how do we get that to really thrive? Um, Absolutely. It seems like a lot of these other crops are really integral to making that system, the wheat that's at the core of that really optimizing production or, or whatever you want to well, call it. Well, and, and that's that's the problem with the mindset in eastern Washington is we grew up in a hundred and some years of wheat culture and all of us, even the young guys today, it's that they know what that beautiful stand of wheat and you know it doesn't matter if wheat's a dollar a bushel it's still the ideal to achieve and it's a mindset and but that doesn't mean that all these other crops can't work into that mindset. And then has it turned out with us, canola being more profitable than wheat, that's still the wheat. I, I'm at heart, I'm still, I still want that perfect crop of wheat out here. You're still a wheat farmer. <laughs> yes. Even and, though and, canola has made you the most money over right. the years. <laughs> and, but I started raising canola to raise better wheat. There is no doubt about it, and I think that's all right. Uh, you know, it's hard for one of these other crops because the whole infrastructure is set up for wheat in this country. And so it's a, it's a more difficult stretch to, to uh, say, well, I'm going to have the greatest crop of safflower <laughs> that was ever raised. You know, you just don't think that way. That's one to unplug from the combine, isn't it? Yes, been there, done that. <laughs> so. Yep. <laughs> a torch works best. No. <laughs> That's not a good solution out here either, unfortunately. I suppose we should probably ask you another one of these questions. Um, would you tell me about the most memorable time when you experienced unintended consequences from a trial and how you moved on with that information? I'm almost thinking, well, shoot, I should have planted some more peas this fall, but... Uh, well, is there uh, still time? <laughs> no, there's not. And that's, in, in this part of the country, we often have to seed our fall crops before we get done with harvesting last year's crop. And that's one of the big logistical challenges here because winter comes here a lot earlier. I mean we call way down south in Cooley City the banana belt. So, oh, yeah, you know and, you're farming at the end of the road at that point. Yeah, <laughs> and I, it always blew me away when I did go to school at Pullman is they'd have snow, but it wouldn't last very long, and they would have days, you know, that you could be outside and stuff in the winter, and... and uh, then I'd come back home to the frozen wasteland. <laughs> it, was, it was quite the experience in a way. Um, it's really amazing. I'm really glad to be out here uh, talking with you and, and other folks outside of kind of that immediate blues region because there is so much variability across this eastern Washington, North Idaho, and 
into Oregon across the landscape, just in terms of climate and soils. And it's just a fascinating place, which, you know, as we talk about trying things on the farm and how variable it is. Um, all right. What's your biggest barrier to trying new things on your farm? Um, Nothing? No, there... <laughs> It's not in my mind, but it's again going back to time and money. And so some of our income is generated from NRCS uh, equip, and, and I think those are really good programs. But if you're committed to a program and you, then you want to do an experiment in a part of the field, this is not an easy obstacle to overcome. And so something new comes along and says, well, I want to try that. And so when we were looking for this plot to put the shorghum on, that came into play. Um, not that they were opposed to it. It's just we had a contract, and the contract that wasn't part of the contract. And so we had to work around and move it to another spot. And, and, uh, and what I originally wanted to, I don't think it's a barrier as much as it is, is an inconvenience. If you put a different seed in your drill, first you got to clean your drills out. It's that prep time to put a new crop and then meter your drills and see if it's seeding right. And if you're only doing 20 acres or 40 acres, it's going to take you longer to set it up than it is actually to do the job. And so if you're going to sow a thousand acres of wheat, you know, it takes the same amount of time to set up as if you're going to do a 20 acre plot. So it's that time you lose I think setting up the equipment for an entirely different crop that you have to set aside and I have a good rule of thumb that it's going to take you twice as long as you think it is. That sounds like farming in general, doesn't it? <laughs> Basically, yes. <laughs> but but um, but that's I I've spent more as much time getting the seed getting the drill metered figuring out the depth I wanted, then it's taken me to seed the plot. I've heard, and it's, I've heard it's worth it to do it right, though, to really get it and make that time it's to important. do it. It's important to do that. Uh, you know, like even if, if you sow it twice the rate and say, well, the drill was sowing too heavy, and, and that's all right, you know, we'll, we're not doing that much and we can afford to buy a little bit more seed, but at that plant population size, you might get a totally different result than if you would have planted it at the right size. And, and then also on these trials, it, people are planting at different rates. And it takes time to figure out what's the right rate for your climate and your soil. You're not going to get it the first year. but Sometimes the mistakes work out really well, and, and I don't know what I was doing one year. I, I would sit there and use my scale, and it was electronic, and 
my eyes were getting poor and it was reading fluid ounces instead of pounds and ounces. So I was very accurately measuring out, you know, how much was coming out of each run. And I thought it was odd and I ended up only putting on two pounds of canola of this hybrid instead of the three I wanted. And it turned out it worked out really well and I could save myself a whole bunch of money but an acre by not uh, on a hybrid not seeding as much as I was with with some of the more conventional canola. So, so you're going to make mistakes like that too. Um, right? And it sounds like you found out they call canola a very plastic plant. <laughs> I think it sounds like you found that out yeah. <laughs> in, in practice. So, that. but I, my point is that mistakes can work out, and, and so I don't get too upset if oh crap, we were supposed to put on 4.5 pounds of sorghum and the way we only got four on, or we got six on. Mm-hmm. We'll go with it. See what happens and see where it was thin or where it was too heavy. And, and that's what you, the mistake part of it, you can learn a lot too. What's the most fun part about trying things on your farm? I'd like to problem solve. I mean, that just... To me, that's the hook, is I, I get too bored. I can't sit around the house. And, and actually, I like complex problems. And that's the cool thing about farming is there's so many problems you can never solve them all. Is that dark well, humor? It's, it's, it's great because you never... There's never any sure prediction on the weather, especially long-term weather, you know, if you're going to have that. And somebody told me, you know, of the billions of microbes, of the thousands of species of microbes in the soil, we know a fraction of them. Most of them we haven't named, and every few feet they change. And so you can't know everything, and as soon as you accept that... <laughs> You can solve the problems that are solvable and then take your best shot at the rest of them. But I enjoy <laughs> yeah. that. I, I, if, it was, if it was like an assembly line, I think I'd go nuts where you're doing the same thing every time, every day. I, I'm, I don't think I'm mentally built to do that. Yeah. Well, so how about this one? Um, if you... If you had a question for the research community, what would that be? And I'm not even sure how to phrase this, but I've collected data. I'm not very good at it, but we collect data, and, and the question is always, well, did you collect this, this, and that? You know, we need these data points. But everybody's mind, if you invest the time and the money, into doing a plot and doing the research, if you really believe in what you're doing, which I think is important too, then you find a way to justify it. And we know we can take any data and take the points we want to to justify the expense and the time we put into it because this is going to be the next cat meows. From the scientific standpoint, 
yeah, we're going to collect data, and they can collect data. And because it's so variable, even in a, in a test plot, but especially across your farm, how do you, how do you keep from skewing those numbers to justify your investment? Because the, the easiest example I can give you is if the neighbor's farm comes up for sale and you pay for more than pay for it for more than it's worth because maybe you coveted it all these years or whatever, but you, or you need to expand the you can find a reason to make the economics work out. And sometimes it's like, well, the price of land will go up and it'll be worth a lot more down in the years. If you're a farmer, you have no intention of ever selling it anyway. So, you know, what are the true data points or what is the true economics? Just because it makes your equipment work better, can still cover that ground or do you have to buy that equipment or is it you just plain wanted it? And by golly, now we got a farm. You know, how you take that uh, intuitive part of your brain and make it more analytical. They beat that out of you in graduate school. That's where they get all the process, the methodology, and the, the, all that replication and statistics to, to reduce the bias. But we don't have time to do that. And, <laughs> and even that, I've seen a lot of. I've read a lot of, believe it or not, university papers back in the 60s and 70s that is just garbage today. It might have been the best thought at the time, but they used the wrong data points. They used their, even though they were very educated people, they let their biases get in the way. Uh, and I read an article every day where maybe it was something archaeology that they always thought uh, the men were the warriors and the women did the farming, and now they're finding out that they just assumed that. And, and now they're finding scientific evidence that, oh, they were, they were wrong. So even very smart people can, their biases unintended work into the, the data. So that is a continual problem because I don't want to go around telling everybody that, hey, this is what you got to do. This is the best thing ever. And we just doubled or tripled. And I, I don't have any of the data worked out. I can tell you that spring wheat on following peas, I know was a lot better. How much bias I'm putting into it, but I didn't want to raise the peas in the first place. So <laughs> that... That's one reason I was pleasantly surprised. I had no expectations there. So it's trying to keep your own personal bias out of that. What is the scientific formula for doing that? Yeah. Well, finding the objective data. But also, you know, I do think, to speak to a little bit of what you said there, it's just in that the, the process and the curiosity and being willing to look at past conclusions and say, oh, that actually might not have been true. We have more information now. How do we move forward with the information we have? And I do think that is something that science, you know, really works to do. And so, which, you know, I think there, there's room for that. That is part of that, you know, the learn, learn better. 
Well, and I agree with you that it's, but for these on-farm trials, for the farmers itself, we're justify. We have to justify that time and money we spent, and we're not trained in that. We're not getting paid. Not you know. I I don't know how to think, yeah. but but that that's not our training. We try to be, but it's it's very difficult not to not to let your own personal biases interfere. You know, and I've seen people just deny looking at something because there's no way I'm ever going to raise canola. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to look at the numbers. I'm not going to see the numbers. And then Bill drives by with a brand new pickup and damn it, he's making money <laughs> off that stuff. That is so what data do you look at when you, when you collect data? What is the most important things that you look at? How many bruises and scabs I got on me for bushel? <laughs> <laughs> for bushel, yeah. yeah. Somewhere. Um, I don't look at enough data. I, I mean, that's my weakness. There's always more data I could have kept track on, and I've tried and tried just to do the economic numbers, mm -hmm. and then I find out well, there's other stuff that happened, and and this is over long term and so it's not the data so much as the complications um, that I get really wrapped up into and okay we can grow this where's the market and how can we develop a better market and I get sidetracked on that <clears throat> I'm not concerned so much about yield per acre it's like if I can grow this and this looks like a viable alternative. How do we bring the other pieces, the marketing piece, the infrastructure piece, into play so that, that it can do the economics thing? If I say, well, this will go a ton of acre this year, and you know, this is the price in North Dakota, it actually means nothing. Um, and, and the things I really want to know, they don't have measurements for us. Like on the organic, why didn't I need to put on 80 pounds of N to get 14% protein when I could only really put on about 25 and we still got 14% protein? Because the soil test didn't agree with it. So data is kind of a mixed bag for me. It's policy and bringing the community together to create a marketplace is probably a more interest that's I'm better at that. What's the most annoying thing about trying things on your farm? It's not so much it's trying things on the farm I guess it's interacting with people and even though we will have tours people will come out and you've got working groups and it's not that I miss the old days because there was some really hard stuff in the old days, hard physical work in the old days that we've overcame with technology and stuff. But it's that lack of a larger group of people in your close community to get together with fellow farmers that are kind of like-minded or trying to do the same thing you are. You might have... 
it might take a whole state or a whole Pacific Northwest to connect with, and it's still a small group of individuals, in your local climate, your local soil type and landscape, it's extremely limited. And it goes back to, like I said, when I started farming, there was 10, 11 farms on the hill, and now it's been reduced to two because the economics dictate that you got to get bigger and, and the farms. And so the most annoying things or the saddest thing I've seen in my life over farming is, is, is that lack of the agrarian community. We still have a lot of people always moving into rural America, but it's a rural culture instead of an agrarian culture. And they're two very different things. And this rural culture has kind of developed a life of its own, and people come out here to retire so they could hunt and fish. People come out here to get away from society. It's totally different than the agrarian culture that I was fortunate enough to be born in where everybody helped each other and I think a lot of people coming to the country seen that ideal of you know how farmers had started co-ops and all that stuff that they did to survive back in the homestead days and stuff and and I think it it's a great ideal but they can't recreate it because they're coming from such different backgrounds and they've came from suburbia and they've come from the cities and so it's not the same culture as a group of farmers sitting around and trying to figure out how to solve the railroad monopoly or whatever. Well that's all the old Grange Halls, right? How many Grange Halls, I mean they're, they're dead and you go to a Grange meeting and you're 70 years old and they call you, hey kid, how come you came? I mean, it, it's, I know it's not, I'm being oversimplistic, but it, it's um, those rural institutions we used to rely on and, and like the Granges where they'd have the big dances and stuff when I was a kid, you know, those things are passing and maybe they, have run their usefulness, but the internet doesn't replace that one-on-one -on -one communication, that going out and talking to, you know, a group of fellow farmers out behind the Grange Hall and saying, well, what did you do here? And I drove by your field the other day and that looked like crap. What happened <laughs> out here? But we're losing that and Maybe I've just lost it because I'm not the greatest internet com communicator, but I do not believe it's the same as that one-on-one -on -one tailgate talk that we kind of grew up with, you know, where we stopped at the neighbor's house just to have a chat and trying to fit, trying to problem solve, trying to figure it out. What are we going to do? It has, it's been raining for a week now, you know and the fields are too wet to do anything. And so what do you think? That, that we're losing that aspect. And I'm hoping through the internet, the younger farmers can pick that up. Um, but that's kind of telling me it's getting time for me to retire here. 
I don't see a lot of retirement yet in your future way. Yeah. No, hopefully the internet. I, I agree. I think in in my mind and, and the work that we do with the Farmers Network is is trying to figure out where to use the best tool in the best place, right? The digital space, like this, we have our Zoom soil health coffee hours, and you know that brings yeah, together that, people that couldn't normally necessarily easily yeah. be in the same room for an hour, and then. But it doesn't replace that in person on the table. And, and, and I, I want to be sure you, the viewers at least understand it, it's a numbers game. And if you got a hundred people trying to solve a problem, it's better than you just trying to solve it by yourself. But like this agrarian population, the people that actually make their living farming, and then you narrow it down to dry land farming, there's not enough of us. I would, I wish the economics were out there that we could have five times, ten times as many farmers out there that somebody has two children, both of them could farm. And that just doesn't seem to be the case, you know, in and because with that you get more diversity of thought, more more ideas out there, and and to me, even though you got a hundred gung ho people in the Pacific Northwest talking about this one subject, you know whether it's direct seed or whatever it is, it's not enough. You want I, it, it's really a people problem in that. We don't have enough. I, I truly believe that. I think that's the one thing that's really missing from when I was young. Like hopefully this podcast does kind of help create some of those spaces, even though it's not the same. Um, but no, but it needs to create the space. Like I said, it's just the more minds you have working on a problem, because we do have a problem. We can't farm like our grandfathers did. It's not going to work. It might have worked fine in 1910. When I'm talking about my grandfathers, <laughs> not yours. And and we overtilled in the in the 80s and 90s. We know that now. Uh, so we have to continue the change. And I would like 10,000 people experimenting around there than just a hundred. Because somebody's going to get it right, and so, and it's a crapshoot at the end. Is am I going to try this? Is it going to be successful? But the more people you have trying something, now that you know that worked, I want to do that. That was, I think, the importance of having a lot more farms out there, and I don't see any way to get them. You know, I bet I'm I'm not. Being a pessimist, it's just what I've seen in my lifetime is is we need those people, but we need them actively farming, and we need to have be able to have them make a living off of just farming and not having their spouse have to get a real job. Uh, that's that's the annoying part of farming, just to see the population of the actual farmers just drop off the, you know, scale. 
I appreciate what you said, though, about you know the trying things and trying to make a space to share. I know again, this isn't this podcast isn't the perfect space for it, but hopefully, it's a step in the right direction of working with what we got. So I want to thank you very much for sharing your amazing wealth of knowledge and experience today. Um, truly, you've you've shared a lot of great stuff, and I appreciate it. Thank you for having me out. Well, I enjoyed it, and and we don't get much company out here, so I hope I didn't talk you to death. Um, I don't think that's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> it's truly been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Wade. Thank you. As always, a big thank you to our guests today for sharing their wealth of knowledge and experience with us. This podcast is produced by the PNW Farmers Network team with music credit to Carlos Flores. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers alone and do not represent that of the PNW Farmers Network or any associated agencies. Please remember that experimental results will vary and listeners are encouraged to try things at home. If you like what you heard, please support this work by sharing, rating, and reviewing. And do consider joining us as a guest or nominating a friend who is trying things on their farm. We look forward to hearing from you. Until next time, happy trials.